When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray this way. First he said, don't pray this way, don't pray this way. It's very interesting stuff. Then he said, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, which is actually a command. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Very interesting. There's, there's so much to make out of that. How much of it has to do with your and my Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon and our hope, our hope that heaven and earth will collide. It's a confident hope that Jesus will return and make all things new. And yet, his way of describing the newness and the hope was to call it a kingdom. Usually don't sit over there. That's okay. Just throwing me a curve. I get it. It's fine. I read a great article, by the way, on why that's okay. If you like to sit in one place in church, that's fine. It's fine. Pull it back together. Jesus told stories about men and women learning what the kingdom is and how much it, it was of value to them. The kingdom of God is like these parables. And then he would describe it in other teachings. And earlier in the spring, before Easter, we looked at some of those stories after looking at his teachings and healings. Um, the Apostle Paul describes the kingdom as righteousness, joy, and peace, which we'll talk about. Jesus described it as a kingdom, one that we enjoy in part now and more fully later. What troubles me about my own heart and mind, and I think perhaps yours also, is we have this thought, this tendency in our, in our minds, in our being, to think that religion is a part of our life. There's a box that we need to check, the religious box. And when we do that, it's sort of like getting our taxes done or sort of like taking care of something we need to take care of. And yet, if the truths that we reflect in the Apostles' Creed exist and they're for us and they're received by faith, then they change everything. And they explain everything. Maybe not as fully as we would like, but they explain everything. It was missing a piece. And it was not happy. I think some of us can relate to this book, Shel Silverstein. Some of you don't like children's books. I don't do this very often. Sorry. So it set off in search of its missing piece. And as it rolled, it sang this song. Oh, I'm looking for my missing piece. I'm looking for my missing piece. Heidi ho, here I go, looking for my missing piece. Sometimes it baked in the sun. But then the cool rain would come down. And sometimes it was frozen by the snow, but then the sun would come and warm it again. And because it was missing a piece, it could not roll very fast, so it would stop to talk to a worm or smell a flower. Sometimes it would pass a beetle, and sometimes the beetle would pass it. And this was the best time of all, when a little butterfly lands on the missing piece. And on it went over oceans. Oh, I'm looking for my missing piece, over land and over seas. So grease my knees and fleece my bees. I'm looking for my missing piece. Through swamps and jungles, up mountains and down mountains. 
Until one day, lo and behold, I found my missing piece. It's saying, I found my missing piece. So grease my knees and fleece my bees. I found my... Wait a minute, said the piece. Before you go greasing your knees and fleecing your bees... I am not your missing piece. I am nobody's piece. I am my own piece. And even if I was somebody's missing piece, I don't think I'd be yours. Oh, it said sadly, I'm sorry to have bothered you. And on it rolled. It found another piece. But this one was too small. And this one was too big. And this one was a little too sharp. And this one was too square. One time it seemed to have found the perfect piece, but it didn't hold tightly enough and lost it. Another time it held too tightly and it broke. And so on and on it rolled, having adventures, falling into holes and bumping into stone walls. And then one day it came upon another piece that seemed to be just right. Hi, it said. I, said the piece, are you anybody else's missing piece? Not that I know of. Well, maybe you want to be your own piece. I can be someone's and still be my own. Well, maybe you don't want to be mine. Maybe I do. Maybe we won't fit. Well, hmm, hmm, it fit, it fit perfectly, at last, at last. And away it rolled, and because it was now complete, it rolled faster and faster, faster than it had ever rolled before, so fast that it could not stop to talk to a worm or smell a flower too fast for a butterfly to land. But it could sing its happy song. At last it could sing, I found my mizzen piece. And it began to sing, I frown my nizzen geese, uff of rune my mitts and breeze, so crease nigh mees and bleeze nigh drees, uff frown. Oh my. Now that it was complete, it could not sing at all. Aha, it thought, so that's how it is. So it stopped rolling, and it set the piece down gently, and slowly rolled away. And as it rolled, it softly sang, Oh, I'm looking for my missing piece. I'm looking for my missing piece. Heidi-ho, here I go, looking for my missing piece. So much interesting stuff in the missing piece. So many statements about relationships. I think the dominant motif of the missing piece, feel free to borrow this for your English thesis, is the argument between traditional society and modern society. Traditional that assumes family and relationships, but sometimes isn't as interested in the individual. Modern society that's very interested in the individual, sometimes at the cost. What does it mean to be a whole person? Does it, do you have to be in relationship or not? Is it indeed just about moving slow enough that a butterfly could land on you? The reason that I love the missing piece is I feel like the missing piece. And perhaps like some of you, perhaps more, perhaps less than some of you, I have tried feeling differently through, me, through uh, various fashions through relationships or through a lack of relationships, through learning to move slow enough for the butterfly or moving faster because maybe that would be more fun. According to Jesus, why do you and I feel that way? Because the world is uh, broken by sin and death. Yet he came and intervened 
The Apostles' Creed talks about God, the Good Father, maker of heaven and earth, and immediately starts talking about the intervention of Christ into history, atoning for sin. And now that purchases for us new bodies, resurrection, and life everlasting. That's our hope, by the way. It's not heaven. Heaven is great. Our citizenship is there now. And some of the reason that some of us are so excited about heaven is we are tired right now. And that's fine. Our hope is in the resurrection and the life. And in the story of Scripture, in Jesus' description of the kingdom, and then the Apostle Paul's description of the kingdom, we're explained why we feel, perhaps, like a missing piece. And the answer to the gap in us is in trusting faith, faith with Jesus Christ, which does not remove all feelings of disorientation, no matter what I say, for the next five minutes to 95 minutes. Oh, I could preach that long. But I won't. No matter what I say, you will not leave this room and enter a world that isn't bent by sin and death. And yet there's good news. And it is so very, very good. What is that good news? I believe it is that Jesus Christ purchased for us righteousness and joy and peace. Righteousness is the best first one ever because it is the gift that does not seem like a gift. Who wants riches or wisdom or good looks when we can have righteousness? It just doesn't sound exciting. And one of the things that's funny about it is, of course, we can't be righteous. And of course, we cannot become righteous. But according to the Apostles' Creed, Jesus, the only one who was righteous, became righteousness for you and I. Did you notice that in the Apostles' Creed, a summary of the Christian faith written in the first and the second centuries to explain it to these other faiths nearby, because it was so new, there's not one mention of morals. Did you catch that? Did you ever catch that? Do you think that's interesting? I mean, our reputation is that we're so about the rules and commands of Scripture, and yet the most famous summary of our faith has nothing to do with morals, because morals have nothing to do with a relationship with God initially. Initially, we just know that we need Him, and we have Him. Then we respond in love. And I am so grateful for the morals in Scripture. Not only because they guide me into decisions of life, away from decisions of death, but maybe you're not like me and you never wake up in the morning anxious or you don't have any trouble sleeping at night. Maybe that's just me. If I didn't have the explanation of sin in Scripture, both my own and others, I think I would have a lot more sleepless nights and a lot more anxious mornings. Because when we go back to that story that's still bothering us from 10 years ago, it's not because we're petty. I mean, you might be. I don't know. But some of the stories that bother us 10 years later, it's not so much because we're silly or we're just one of those people that have trouble letting go. It's because someone sinned against you. And that hurts. 
It's because you hurt someone and it bothers you. It's one of the chief indicators of a follower of Christ is that their sin bugs them. And they want to do something about it. So what do we do? We repent to God. Sounds funny. Like, why would we repent to God? Well, he's God. That's the first, that's the first uh, violation. Anytime we sin, it's a violation of love for God and neighbor. So we tell him sorry for hurting that person. Then we go to that person and tell them sorry. Ask their forgiveness. Try not to do it again. My point is that righteousness, which is the first description of the kingdom, purchased for us in the Apostles' Creed, is a wonderful gift. Even though it doesn't sound like a cool gift, it is. Not just because we know about choices of life and how to avoid choices of death. Almost every letter in the New Testament has a list of things to avoid and a list of things to pursue. That's wonderful. It's also because the righteousness of Scripture and of Christ is a wonderful untangler to your story and to mine. That thing that wakes you up at 2 a.m. It's not just that you're that kind of person that can't let go of whatever. I don't even know what that means. It's because we live in a violent world and we have hurt people and they have hurt us. And the scriptures, descriptions of, of sin and of, uh, of bad choices and of good choices, those help us untangle our story and understand. So it is a wonderful gift purchased the Apostles' Creed. The second one is joy. The second thing purchased by Christ that's described in the Apostles' Creed is joy. And I think for us, joy seems like that gift it's actually not really for us. It's for that ant that's always happy. You know? Do you guys, you guys don't have that ant? Maybe you're all the ant. That's why you don't know what I'm talking about. Aunt. I'm sorry, aunt. In the Midwest, contextually, you would get that, but it's fine. Like, we think that joy is the person that's smiling all the time. Right? That's not it. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul was writing from prison, and in four chapters, you read the book of Philippians in about 10, 12 minutes, he says the word joy 15 times. What's he talking about? He's talking about a constant mindfulness that God is who he says he is, and that because of what he did, we can be content. Joy is far more about contentness than whether you frown or smile throughout your day. It has far more to do with what you believe in, in your being, than how happy you feel in that moment. You're like, that doesn't sound like good news. I want to feel good. I don't know if I can say anything that will make your Sunday afternoon better. Because you might have a lot going on right now. But I can tell you that joy is available to you in a relationship with Christ and that joy will carry you through your Sunday afternoon. Maybe not with a smile on your face because you have some heavy stuff going on, but still with confidence that God is who he says he is, that he calls you, if you have professed faith in him, his son or his daughter, and that you can actually be content in that. You're like, I don't feel content. I want to say, how long, Lord? Well, now you sound like a follower of God throughout Scripture that understands that Jesus has intervened and beaten sin and death, but he has not come back. And so there's a tension. And you and I live in it. 
where we don't even like the idea. Aren't we, aren't we just suspicious of joy? I mean, I, I am. That's why I was talking about my goofy aunts. And I totally thought that joke would work. And it didn't. <laughs> you know how badly we misunderstand joy and get skeptical about it? There's this verse in Philippians that we so wildly misunderstand and it blocks our understanding of the joy purchased for us. It's written almost as often as John 3.16. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That does not mean you can fly. It doesn't. But sometimes we sort of imply that it does mean that. Do you know what it means? It means something far more exciting. It means all the things you have to do this afternoon. You can do with confidence that God loves you, likes you. That you're a mess naturally, and so am I. Sinful and in deep need of saving. And he has saved you. Therefore, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. When we affirm that God is a good father, maker of heaven and earth, that Jesus came, died, rose from the dead, historically, that's why Pontius Pilate's name is in the creed, because it's not just ideas about eternity. It's about events that actually happened. When we profess belief, not that God exists, and that Jesus exists, and that the Holy Spirit exists, but in God, the good father, in Jesus Christ our Lord and in the Holy Spirit we are in the process of receiving righteousness joy and the purchased peace of Christ so if righteousness is the gift that doesn't sound cool and joy is the gift that we're skeptical of peace is the gift that we're very excited about but maybe we don't believe it's possible peace is the gift that sounds too good to be true And the reason it sounds too good to be true is we're still in the midst of sin and sickness and brokenness and violence and death. One of the reasons that I prayed vaguely over the prayer requests that were handed to me is they were a lot for me emotionally. And I know I am a professional and I should have been fine, but I wasn't. Because there's a lot of sickness and a lot of mourning, and a lot of joy. But when Apostle Paul says, the kingdom of God is righteousness and joy and peace, and you're like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to get the peace. I don't know, I don't know if I believe in it. Is it possible? Is there a belief in that will help you and I wake up in the mornings without anxiety I think so and then it might return the next day because the world is that broken and yet the joy and the righteousness and the peace were purchased by Christ and they are ours is there a purchased peace that when I wake up in the middle of the night worried about this family member Are they going to be okay? Do they know they were loved by God and by me? Does the peace of Christ speak into that? Yes. 
But because I'm not with him bodily, what do I then have to do? Remind myself of the gospel of Jesus. I have a kind of simple application for us this morning. Can you work on reminding yourself that you're a mess and you're loved? It's a very fast summary of the gospel. The Apostles' Creed, the summary of the heart of God, the work of Christ, the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit, which we have, all Christians have it. Don't mistake the presence of the Holy Spirit with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, please. Everyone who's professed faith in Jesus has the Holy Spirit forever, period. It's over. That doesn't mean gifts don't matter. They do. They're awesome. That's why they're called gifts. But they're different. They're two different things. We have the Holy Spirit if you're professing faith in Christ. But we live in a very tense world. Theologians call it the already not yet. Which is a theologian-y way of being like, well, it's great news. But that doesn't mean everything's going to be great. So what do you and I do? We need to learn to remind ourselves of the good news. And one way of reminding yourself of the good news is simply this. I'm a mess and I'm loved. I've been on a roll lately, offending people. I don't mean to be on a roll. It really bothers me. I've been able to apologize successfully to most of them. But you know what helps me more than apologizing to them? Remembering that if they think I'm selfish, they don't know the half of it. (laughs) You know how I do that in my own heart and mind at 2 a.m. when I wake up worrying about one of you guys? I remember that I'm a mess but I'm loved. And the proof of that is in the Apostles' Creed. Historically and religiously and philosophically, God loves us and likes us and calls us His own. How do we know that? Because He sent Jesus. What now? Will we have the Holy Spirit? Be encouraged by that and learn to remind yourself of the good news. That you're a mess, but loved by him and called his own. Would you pray with me? Father, I understand your scripture to be saying that you have already begun giving us who trust in you righteousness, joy, and peace. And yet we do not sense the joy and the peace and we want nothing to do with righteousness. And yet that is the kingdom purchased for us. Lord, there are so many arrows sticking out of us that would distract us from the good news that we are a mess naturally but so loved by you. So would you remind us and remind us and remind us. Bless us as we take the sacrament with a sense that we are a mess but loved. Bless us as we go about our week remembering that we are a mess, but we are loved. Bless us when we wake up at 2 a.m. with the knowledge that we are a mess, but we are loved. And as your Holy Spirit pursues us, giving us righteousness, joy, and the purchased peace of Christ, help us to sense it. Amen.